Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might envision and create a more flourishing future for all in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. If you'd like the opportunity to meet me in person and explore these themes in greater depth, I'd love to invite you to the Flourishing Futures Salon. This is an exciting series of intimate, curated gastronomical gatherings that combine locally sourced food and elegant wines with meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. These are enchanting, poignant and memorable evenings designed to bring together diverse perspectives with the aim of cultivating community and vibrant new partnerships. If you'd like to attend the next gathering in London, please sign up at ffsalons.com to register your interest. When we have the next date scheduled, you'll receive a private invitation and a special listener's discount. I'm excited to meet you if you choose to come. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with Bill Yao, Chinese-Australian-Irish entrepreneur, author, investor and philanthropist, who has left an indelible mark on the business, social and sustainability sectors. With a diverse career spanning decades, Bill is not only the co-founder of the popular Coda Dojo movement, a free global network formed to assist young people with learning computer programming, his career in tech and business also encompasses two unicorn companies and the launch of the world's first biotech accelerator. A general partner of SOSV, a venture capital fund of over $1 billion, and founder of the SOSV Momentum Pre-Accelerator Programme, Bill is also chair of the SENS board and his focus on health, longevity and environmental sustainability plays a central role in much of his work. As co-founder of WeForest, a non-profit organisation dedicated to reforestation efforts that has planted 100 million trees globally, Bill has also made significant contributions to combating climate change and promoting ecological balance. Bill also co-founded Xing, a pioneering enterprise social networking platform, prior to which he served as COO of Davnet, a telecommunications carrier. The author of three books, Bill has been a speaker at global events such as the World Economic Forum, the Globe Forum in Sweden, TED and TEDx, and at institutions such as the London School of Economics and the House of Commons. This was a rich and delightfully surprising interview for me as we wended our way beyond the themes I'd planned to explore towards questions surrounding our search for beauty, purpose and longing. It's a conversation that has stayed with me and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Bill, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you today. Where are you joining me from? Uh, actually, I am joining you from a hotel in London, having just uh, done a whirlwind tour of Taipei, uh, Dubai, Rome, and uh, I did my <laughs> third ever stand-up comedy gig in, in uh, Kingston last night. No, seriously. Well, hang on. Before we get to the first question, what were you doing your comedy on? Uh, actually, my first set is on racism huh. because I've experienced a lot of it. So I figure I'm a subject matter expert. And uh, as I say in my routine, though, just because you've ridden a bus a lot doesn't make you a bus driver. <laughs> so, you know, 
being subjected to a lot of racism hasn't actually made me a better racist, but uh, it has informed me. Fascinating. I would love to see you stand up. Have you got any future dates in the diary for those who want to see that side of you? Uh, yes, yes. I'm actually gigging in Brixton tomorrow night. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm looking forward to your Netflix special whenever that comes out. Uh, well, I have my first gig ever up on YouTube. Do you? Okay, we're going to include that link on the yeah. show notes. I, I would love to, to watch that. That's great. I had no idea. Sure. Um, multi-talented person, clearly. Well, you know, I've I've done startup and I've done stand-up and I can tell you stand-up's harder because the feedback on your failure is more immediate. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I would. Everything that you imagine is bad about public speaking, multiply it by ten thousand. That's stand up. Yeah, that's great. Which is no wonder why stand up comics are often batshit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking about batshit crazy, yes. if we're thinking about the state of the human story right now and where we are, yes, how would you imagine what's going on in the global human psyche if we use that as a starting frame? So. We have this really unfortunate, very specific problem, which is that somehow it has become okay to uh, aggrandize psychopaths. Hmm. And psychopathy thrives in chaos. And we have plenty of chaos and more chaos to come. And psychopathy thrives on dividing people and i the politi- the you know we've in an entirely new era of the politics of division mm-hmm. which has heretofore been unprecedented and it's everybody knows it's unsustainable and yet there are people in the world who are extracting value from that division and they're happy to do so because they think, well, you know, there's plenty of value that you could take out of this before things really go wrong. And yet they don't realize that things already have really gone wrong. Yeah, there's this kind of sense that if you are powerful enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, you can kind of isolate yourself from the impacts of your actions. And it's it just... Yes. It's so illogical. I mean, to a point, perhaps, but... um. It just seems like a really, <laughs> really simplistic mistake to make. Yeah, it is a simplistic mistake and, and we, we, we ignore, it's a mistake of scale. <laughs> Even the most egregiously self-interested narcissist realises that if you're on a lifeboat, it doesn't matter that you're standing on the bow. If everybody's pissing into the boat, it's going to sink <laughs> and take you with it. That's so grim and such a graphic, great example. Yeah, exactly. Get people to stop pissing in the boat by giving them some nice toilets. <laughs> preferably off board. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you see, preferably preferably upcycling so that actually the water gets recycled. There you go. Which is what happens on the International Space Station. Um, and it's fine. Mm. <laughs> so, okay, we're starting with psychopaths and narcissists, which I think is actually a very useful place to start. What are some of the most unhelpful stories or perhaps assumptions that we make about the way that the world works that you think we actually need to start to look closer at or dismantle? So there's a kind of idea that you can solve big complicated problems quickly if you, you know, if you just have the right mm. innovation. Like, you know, we, we, 
we there's a lot of magical thinking in the world that somehow it'll just be, you know, a miracle will save us. And, and a lot of people live their lives that way. So they look at life from the perspective of, oh, someday my purpose will find me, which is statistically insane. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're much better off uh, designing a purpose for your life and then living into it because the preponderance of evidence would suggest that action begets passion and not the other way around. Mm. So if you put some effort into designing a purpose and then you live your life that way, it gets better. Mm. All of the good things you want come out of that. So for folks, because this is a really interesting and quite a thorny topic because there's a kind of, no, I'm going to be kind. <laughs> there's a big tranche of folks who will just say, just find your purpose and off you go. And it's quite, a, again, back to this idea of a simplistic perspective, which is that some people don't have a very pronounced, clear sense of dedication, purpose, vocation. For some folks, it could be quite hard to put a finger on. For others, it could be that their context is so complicated. They're living in such a state of precarity that there isn't the space to be able to think into these things, feel into these things. And I, you know, being someone who's got a lot of experience in a lot of different worlds, including in the startup world, and you've you've seen what it's like to be at the cutthroat edge of business. How do we begin to think of purpose and then design a life that then begets that sense of meaning and purpose? Sure. I have worked at uh, a level that is far below the 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 level of a normal startup in terms of poverty. Hmm with people who are in much more desperate circumstances. And even there, a sense of purpose can make an enormous difference. Uh, so I have you know, worked with village women where we've shared this idea of collective purpose or an individual purpose. And after a period of time, they have designed something that they have then committed to and taken action on, whether that's, you know, digging latrines that are actually sustainable and, and practicing permaculture mm. or whether that's moving away from row farming and moving into, you know, mixed permaculture farming. Yeah, the, it all comes down to this very simple thing, which is the human world occurs in language. <laughs> and if you don't design language that serves you, you are in serious trouble. And I think one of the great lessons that I've learned out of working with computers for so long is iterative thinking. You know, I will back iterative thinking over critical <laughs> thinking any day. And yet that skill is not widely available. So how does that look? Well, it looks like I look at a problem that I want to solve in the world and or a problem that I want to solve for myself, and then I want to relate it to my purpose. And so my purpose is a world that works for all living things while civilization thrives. That was designed. That language was designed. I didn't wait for it to find me. I went out, looked at the state of the world, looked at what would light me up as a human, and I said, that's my purpose. And originally the purpose was much longer and more complicated, and over time I've iterated on it, I've tested on people, and now people, when they hear my purpose, they go, yeah, I could actually get behind mm -hmm. that too. And that's when you know you kind of got it right. And that doesn't just apply for the individual. It applies for every type of human endeavor. So 
SOS Ventures, the VC firm where I'm a general partner, the purpose of the firm is making impossible things inevitable. <laughs> we Forest, where I, uh, you know, co-founder and you know, have spent years planting you know, 82 million trees, funding 100 million trees, lifting you know, millions of women out of poverty. The purpose of We Forest isn't just a tagline. It's a true purpose, <laughs> yeah. making Earth cooler. <laughs> Right? The, the, like, it's nice if it's pithy. It doesn't have to be pithy. I mean, when we started Coda Dojo, um, I would say that the name Coda Dojo is actually pretty good because it, 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 it accomplishes a lot of the purpose because uh, Coda is the coolest word you can have for programmer and Dojo means literally temple of learning oh. in Japanese. And it also implies an entire context of free learning. So you have senseis and you have, and, and you have uh, you know, students and they are absolutely required to, to work and teach each other. And that's all baked into the context. Now, Coda Dojo wouldn't have worked if we'd gone with the original name Saturday Morning Programming Club for Kids. <laughs> it's not got the same ring, has it? Not quite. It has not. <laughs> and so, the, you know, poorly framed, poorly thought through, but more importantly, poorly iterated language and purpose mm -hmm. is a big anathema. And we are often, I think, fall into, okay, I don't have a purpose, so I'm just going to pick this random trope mm. that happens to be number one on TikTok at the moment, and I'm just going to throw my life in behind that. And because action begets passion, you will get passionate about it. Yeah. Because there's been no iteration, because there's been no simple testing of what you're doing, be careful what you get passionate about. You know, if you don't know where you're going, it may just be better to be satisfied with where you are. That's very sobering to hear. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot this year uh, because I hit a big birthday and I was thinking it's a good point to have a bit of a contemplation about what I want to do, where where I can be of most, hopefully, help and support. And that uh, is kind of, kind of like a permission to pause and not rush headlong into something. And I was thinking about this sense that we have, especially when you speak to many young folks, and also reflecting back on when I was in my very early 20s and thinking, well, I've got to get a job, I've got to make money, I can put these skills together and off I go. And then suddenly, 20 years later, I have a career and I've built, it's kind of, I think of it as going up a mountain. Yep. I've scaled this mountain and I've got good views, you know, it's, I've, I've pretty fit in this mountain, all the rest of it. And I'm looking over the other mountain and I'm like, oh, hang on, maybe I'd much rather be on that one over there. <laughs> and it's this, this moment where you just kind of go, okay, that's okay. A lot of people do this. What do I do now? Yep. Or if you're a younger person thinking, take a little moment if you can and figure out which one is calling you more? And you can always course adjust back to your point about iteration. So maybe a question that I'd love to ask you with your experience on these things is, how do you make big iterations or course corrections, decided, sort of depending on the scale, when you realise that actually what you have grown to become passionate about is not serving a thriving civilization on a thriving planet? So there are a couple of answers to that question. So I think the first investigation that every human should undertake is, what are your values? <laughs> and not just like what is the value statement up on the wall that you look at <laughs> as you go and get coffee, but what actually are your values? So my number one value, which was gifted to me by my dad, is kindness. Mm. 
my number two value, which is pretty much up there. I mean, I'm giving them giving these in a list, but on any one day, any of these could be the top. Yeah, is curiosity. And then another thing I value enormously highly is just getting shit done. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God, preach. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I hear you. (laughs) Uh, uh, And then on any given day, family and and civilization and planet are all right up there. Hmm. And and I'm not one of these environmentalists who thinks, look, it, it, it'll just be fine if we get rid of all of all of the humans. Yeah. yeah, the Earth will definitely not care. In in two thousand years, we will have been just another weird blip with a very weird sedimentary layer of plastic. Um, yes. But given the age of the universe is you know, thirteen billion years, and the first six billion odd years there was no chance of life, and the next four billion years was just single celled organisms. This probably hasn't been time for more than one intelligent civilization hmm. to have occurred, even in the vastness of the universe. It just the math just doesn't work that it's likely that there's a lot. And so given that we could actually be the only civilization in the universe at this point, it would be a really bad idea to mess it up. Yeah. So if you look at it from the perspective of what you want to achieve. And then you look at what the problems are. And then you look at, well, what you're already passionate about. There is an intersection where you can say, you know what? I'm really good at the following three things, whatever those three things are. And I'm passionate about those three things because actually, you know, I've developed that passion over time. Mm. And I'm currently directing those three things in a direction, serving something that maybe isn't working for something else that I'm now caring about. Well, you can either do the big flip and go, oh, let's just throw all that away and go on to the next thing, which a lot of humans do. <laughs> I think it is more nuanced and more powerful to look at where you're directing your efforts and say, can that ship be turned? <laughs> because our engines of commerce are the most powerful things that have ever existed. Like outside of, you know, meteorites, <laughs> volcanoes, and the sun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from a planetary perspective, like they are our most powerful tools. And a very small course adjustment in some cases can lead from destruction of something we love to benefiting something we love. Uh, you know, th- this is a, a multi-trillion dollar problem that we have to solve. And people think, oh, I'm going to lose multiple trillions of dollars. Well, no, that's not true that money goes somewhere useful. So like the Americans in the Cold War, I think, spent $100 trillion, according to Carl Sagan at least, on preventing Russia from attacking America during the Cold War. Now, the most hawkish analyst said that that was a 10% chance that that might happen. So they spent $100 trillion to cover a 10% risk. Yeah, the global economy is $95 trillion. So I think that's probably worth saving. Yeah. Um, and a small fraction of that is probably worth investing in saving it, uh, especially given that rather than a 10% risk, you know, climate disruption is a 100% risk yeah, it's already of here. civilization collapse, mm-hmm. right? Like just 100%. So, you know, anything, any any business, well, I, I don't care if it's a, if it's a good business like, uh, you know, so 
like uh, something that saves babies from from a terrible blight, or whether it's a sort of value extraction business like casinos. Mm. None of it is going to last unless we can turn all of it towards making our civilization thrive. Yeah. Uh, so the long answer to your short question is, where do you look? I personally think it is a mistake to throw away what you've built. I think it is much more interesting to find the points of leverage that can turn that ship in the right direction. Because even a one-degree course change over a few decades is a completely new destination. Brilliant. That's so inspiring. I meet so many people. I run this thing called the Flourishing Futures Salon, which is at the moment a, a small project, but it brings people in from different industries. And I've met quite a lot of folks who are predominantly, you know, my professional life in the e-commerce and marketing space. And, you know, they're selling stuff and I'm teaching people how to sell stuff better and make the customers happier. And so there's definitely a dissonance for me in, in that. But then the folks that I meet who come up or come to these talks and their, or these sort of gatherings, and it's all about what does a flourishing future look like for you? And everyone has their own distinct answer. But the levels of commonality are extraordinary. And these people often will say afterwards, oh, it's just so nice to actually talk about these things because I don't feel I can in my organisation. And yet I know other people in their organisation who are also feeling alone in thinking and feeling these things. And, and so there's also that question of, you know, if, if it's one ship, but it's not just one ship. And there are lots of people in that ship that want the ship to turn. So... So how do you begin to create new stories? Obviously, through the work that you do, you've got, you know, you're working with repopulation of basically impoverished landscapes, also supporting people to bring themselves out of poverty. That's one tranche. There's the tech side, there's the education and the children's side. Like you're working on multiple levels and layers or in a constellated way, let's say. For people who don't have that way of working, what's something that you've seen work for others when they're kind of trying to make this little shift? towards more of a purposeful kind of path? Well, well, I think the first thing is being conversation. Mm -hmm. Everybody makes plans in their head. Yeah. And that's where those plans go to die. Oh, God. Bleak but true. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so communicate. Start articulating the plan. And this is where iterative thinking is so important. You know, we went from Saturday morning programming club for kids to Coda Dojo. Yes. Like, we went from, you know, an idea of one club in West, sorry, in, in Cork City, all the way through to the largest organization for free kids organization to, for coding in the world. Like that <laughs> happened not as an event, mm. but as a process and an iterative process. I think we are over obsessed on events mm. and hmm. we are not nearly as focused as we should be on process. There is uh, another element to that, which is when you look at the economy, we, we currently you know, um, live in this uh, uh, you know, hormonal economy yeah. <laughs> right? where, where dopamine is king and cortisol is queen. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, what we really need to do is reconnect and we need to live in an oxytocin economy because <laughs> yeah, oxytocin is the trust hormone and oxytocin happens when you're in conversation, pre preferably in person. And it's also a very powerful learning opportunity when you're together. So start the conversations. Now, you've done exactly the right thing. You have a salon, <laughs> you're getting people to talk about it. 
it's it's perfect, right? I would not alter that in any way other than to also give people one of the most important things. So a lot of humans need permission. Mm. Not a lot of permission. And in fact, you don't actually have to have the authority to grant it. <laughs> and it's just a matter of not withholding it. So if you give someone permission to talk to the rest of their organization, if you organize a salon within that organization of the five people who share that vision yeah. and you give permission for them to start creating language around that and iterating on it, that is power. I, 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 I'm going to badly paraphrase this. Uh, Margaret Mead, yeah, my, my first favorite quote in the world is from William Gibson, which is the future's already happened. Uh, it's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. But my second favorite quote is from Margaret Mead, which is, it never underestimate the power of a few committed individuals working together to change the world, for in reality it is only such small groups of committed humans that ever do. I love that. Yeah. And so you've got the makings of that right there with that salon. Uh, I would absolutely encourage you to start designing language in there that the members can take back to their organizations where they can form their own little posses in their organizations and start thriving based on new language. Mm. Because ultimately, yes, the ship is monolithic. You're right. It's made up of people. Mm -hmm. And the people are held together by language. Mm. And a shift in the language that's iterated well, that people take a little bit of time to make beautiful and clever, mm. is a very powerful force. So I want to come back to the dopamine oxytocin element but I want to pick first the thread on beauty and framing things in language, because the last time we chatted, we were talking about art. And I think one of the things that's come up in the recordings, the interviews for this new season, is how do you cultivate this sense of longing in people? You know, Margaret Mead's quote about dedicated, committed people. They're dedicated for a reason. And what you're saying about growing one's passion, there's this, this sense of emotional, being emotionally inflamed for something. <laughs> Maybe that's not quite the right language. But, you know, this is kind of like... I believe, I believe Steve Martin said it best as uh, this, the, 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 this painting makes me emotionally erect. <laughs> that would be a great one for the sound bites after this conversation. <laughs> yes, so basically that. <laughs> what's, your, what's your take on... Because obviously you're very, you're very keen on paying careful attention to language, which is clear... Um, as part of a bigger picture, how can we engage in that with the arts more broadly, create that longing, cultivate a possibility for something much more alive and wonderful? So the longing's already there. <laughs> I mean, you can smell it on everybody. We're all longing for something. Um, someone once described it to me as the greatest of art helps you touch the eternal. Hmm. And, and I think we are longing for that automatically. I think it's built into the human condition. Mm. So it's not a matter of creating the longing. It's creating something that touches you in such a way that you're connected to the eternal and whatever that is. And it's incredibly moving and it can just be momentary or with the right language, it can be a cause. Hmm. And, you know, it is up to the individual 
taste as to whether they want to create a cause or not or be part of a cause. And I think everybody that I've ever met who is engaged in a cause, especially a noble cause, uh, they're the happiest people I meet. Hmm. And so there is an access here that I think is actually a lot easier than people think. It's just that we also are so terrified of failure yeah, that we don't often just even articulate to one person, let alone thousands. Um, and if you look at startup and stand-up, <laughs> yeah, you've got to you've got to fail a lot to learn. You, you've got to go through the iterations. I mean, in, in, an iteration doesn't make you learn more when it's just success building on success. That's an illusion, uh, and and it shows up in interesting places like. We waste an enormous amount of energy and effort in the sciences repeating failed experiments yeah. because people will publish their successes and they won't publish the failures. And so another team will have nothing to go on other than, you know, well, that bit succeeded. We could perhaps do something else in that area, not realizing that three other teams have already done that experiment, proved that it was a failure and just didn't publish. Yeah. Right? And so the incentives are all wrong. Now, in the art community, in the art world, there's this um, gatekeepering system hmm. where it's incredibly tough to break through or break into you know, something. And, and I think that there is some work to be done to dismantle some of those uh, institutions and constructs that penalize and punish failure. Mm. Yeah, I, I think failure, if there's one thing that you can you could do, if there's one thing to change in humanity, it would be to uh, significantly mitigate our, our the consequences of failure. Yeah. Right. Now, there's room for optimists and pessimists in the in this world. And, you know, if you're about to get on a flight, the last thing you <laughs> want to hear is an optimistic jet engine engineer going, Oh, it'll be grand, right? That's not that's not you know, that's not the room for the optimist, right? That is the room for the hardcore pessimist. And yet, when you penalize failure so often, uh, you know, like people often ask me, what's the difference between U.S. startup culture and hmm. uh, you know U.K. startup culture or European startup culture? Yeah. Uh, and the one key difference isn't the amount of capital there. That's a side effect. The one key difference is the attitude to giving it a go and stuffing it up and then going back and having another go and whether people will back you for the second, third or fourth go mm. until you get it right. And, like, frankly, if you've got three failures in a row, in the U.S. you're going to still probably find someone who will back you if you can tell them what you've learned. Well, In Europe, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Nor in Asia. Right, three strikes, you're out. You know? Yeah. Uh, and yet, in iteration, often you have to have a, a, a significant litany of breakdowns before you figure out, oh, that's the bit. Sounds like also human growth and development. Yeah. You know, this kind of sense of having to cyclically revisit certain patterns, problems, behavioral traits, whatever it is, to be able to recognize it enough times with enough resource to make any kind of significant change. Oh, absolutely. Well, firstly, to um, 
grow your humility muscle. Mm. Like humility is a capacity. It's 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 not um, you know something that is immutable that you either have or you don't. It's something that you can grow, and the 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 more and the more strongly you can grow your humility, the quicker you can iterate on things, and the more open you are to learning and curiosity and all of the other things that become fantastic values. I think if you have curiosity as a value, you have to have humility. Yeah, because you have to be able to open yourself up for getting it wrong Yeah, and trying new things. It sounds to me like there's also this, one of the things I've been thinking about quite a lot is the fact that when we are in um, situations, you mentioned increasing chaos. Um, so stress, chaos, unpredictability, the tendency for many of us, and I definitely feel this in myself in many contexts where there's chaos and uncertainty, is to tighten, it's to constrict, it's to kind of double down on what you feel or think you know, and not to remain in this more open, you don't have to be totally permeable, but this sense of responsive, as opposed to kind of enclosed. And I'm kind of also curious, and bringing back again, I guess, to the language, the Coda Dojo, this idea of people coming together in a temple of education to teach one another and learn from one another. Is there something there about your values as well and the stance that you take in the face of uncertainty and chaos and change? Because it's quite a fresh perspective that one doesn't encounter that often. At least I don't encounter that often. I think there is a bias for action in the true entrepreneur. (laughs) Uh, My wife, Kerry, uh, asked me the other day when I was going to Taipei, she said, now, you know, I trust you and if something goes drastically wrong, I guess you've got a plan. And my plan is, yeah, I'll be taking action immediately if I hear something goes wrong. Um, I remember being in New York on 9-11 and seeing the tower come down and going, okay, wow. what's my course of action here? Well, first priority, you know, communicate. So I rang Kerry and I said, listen, it's been a disaster. I happen to know that the communications hub for New York is in that direction. Wow. We're probably not going to be able to talk. And then I said, and the second thing is you can rely on me to keep myself and those around me safe. And so I just yelled out to people, hey, let's go to Central Park. Wow. And we spent a lot of time in Central Park then because there were no tall buildings until we figured out that the attacks were off and the fl- everything was grounded. We went to a safe place and I just encouraged people to come with me. That's a bias for action. Was it the right thing to do? I don't know. It's certainly standing there, yeah. navel gazing, yeah. probably not the right move. Um, and so I do understand the instinct to contract mm. and to defend and to, 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 to you know, hug that which you hold dear to you. I don't have that instinct as my first go-to. My instinct is a bias fraction, yeah. roll up the sleeves, what can I do here? Um, and I will back that because uh, inactivity is rarely the answer. And in a way, it's an arrogance to think that the things that one holds dear are sufficient to deal with what is actually going on. I was reading recently, and I haven't dug into the research yet, so this might be off, so caveat, that often people who are raised in quite uh, stressful living environments who naturally have high levels of cortisol tend to respond with greater 
clarity when contextually things get worse because they're familiar with it. I also have a bias for action, but I also sometimes I marvel at the fact that there's so many different ways that folks respond to things when shit goes wrong. Yeah. And then sometimes it's this kind of how do you reach through the freeze response and be like, we have to go now. But then also there's the other quality, which is, you know, when you see things going wrong, and I'm thinking now also about the waves of tangible issues, floods, fires, electricity grids going down, whatever it might be. So these kind of waves of issues, but then this longer arc of disruption that some of us are primed to act with immediacy in urgency when, when the, the threat is there and we need that. Yes. But we also need that kind of longer arc vision of, okay, this worked this time and then what and then what and then what. And so how do you cultivate that longer arc uh, of, of, I guess it's an orientation towards a longer arc? Yeah. Understanding the scale of something is really important. <laughs> so... I was giving this talk in Taipei the other day, and I, I, because it's Asia, everybody knows what a what a uh, dianguor is. Hmm. Uh, dianguor is a rice cooker. Ah. And so, uh, so I said, okay, I want you to imagine that all the world's heat is that every like every piece of man-made heat is one rice cooker. Right. So, like every nuclear reactor, every campfire, every car engine. All of it, all human activity is a rice cooker wow. and there's a planet inside. And uh, it's our planet, which we're cooking with all that excess heat. And then, you know, back in 1967, when I was born, we had 320 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And now we have 420 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So there's another 100 parts per million of CO2, which is 0.01%, right? It's little. Mm -hmm. And I asked them to imagine if all human heat, all human warming and heat is one rice cooker, how many rice cookers does that 0.01% of CO2 yeah, account for in terms of extra heating? <laughs> and most people said, oh, it would be a fraction of a rice cooker. The reality is it's 11 more rice cookers. So if you turned off our humanity and just wiped us out for the next 50,000 years, we have 11 more rice cookers cooking our planet. Now, the planet will be fine without us eventually, but it'll be about 50,000 years before we're even close to getting back to normal CO2 levels. So we do have to understand perspective mm. to then be able to go, well, we actually need to do some really big things right now. Like we have to plant 400 billion trees so that we can increase equatorially, so that we can increase cloud cover by 2% <laughs> so that we can cool the planet down enough that we can survive the next 500 years that it's probably going to take to start decarbonizing or to significantly mechanically decarbonize the atmosphere. There's no way to make a short-term solution to that. Yeah. So you do have it. So no matter how scary it is, you need to understand the scale of the problem. Um, there's a, a, a rather crazy, but uh, I, I do like him, physicist out there who has a YouTube channel called Thunderthought, who did that analogy with blue torches mm. uh, on his channel. Um, I think rice cookers for an Asian audience was better, but <laughs> he, he's again got it right. I mean, I don't agree with everything he says. He's, he's got some 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 uh, views on, gen on gender equality that I don't, don't concur with, but his views on 
global warming and and how you actually uh, have to approach the scale of the problem are really quite excellent. Mm. He doesn't like Elon Musk very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to make for some interesting viewing, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so one of the things that you mentioned at the top of the talk, the co- of, oh my gosh, stumbling too much, overexcited. At the top of our conversation, um, we started talking about hormonal elements in how we design our economies. And this is one of the things that I'd noted to, to, to come back to with you. So can you talk a little bit about the dopaminergic and oxytocin-oriented ways in which we mine attention, get people to buy things because this also I think fits into that longer arc of of you know what are we doing what's causing greater damage where are the levers for change yeah so a lot of people are afraid of ai and they're afraid of the you know james cameron skynet version of ai <laughs> first just one reassuring thing we've made tons of progress of artif- on on machine learning mm. which is what we call ai we have made no progress on artificial sentience. Huh. Um, if you if you take every computer, every network, the entire internet, and everything connected to it, including all of the supercomputers, all of that combined has less sentience than an ant. Oh, God. How do you measure the sentience? Well, sentience is one of those ineffable things that's probably right. impossible to measure. <laughs> But just like the, just like pornography, you can't really define it, but you know it when you see it, uh-huh. right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like a child can tell the difference in terms of sentience between a rock and an ant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Buddha actually said it best, you know, sentience, sentience and in his case, life, um, is the ability to suffer. Hmm. Yeah. So until we invent a uh, sentient silicon being that has the ability to suffer um, that also then has significantly more capabilities than us we're probably all right on that scale and that's probably going to be a very long time Uh, unfortunately just the machine learning component (laughs) that's a bit of a problem Mm -hmm. because right now we have given a whole bunch of computers a single task make money yeah yeah. And they have just modeled human behavior and gone, oh, dopamine and cortisol make money. Yeah. That that's it. Let's do that. <laughs> and so the entire like it's not an attention economy. It's a dopamine and cortisol economy. And all of that is just being driven by people who either don't understand the unintended consequences mm. or in the case of the psychopaths don't care. Yeah. And we really have to shift that. Mm. And the way to shift that is to create more personal, local, connected groups of people and inspire them with purpose. And that creates a local economy that is a, and a local information economy that actually is much more scalable than people think. <laughs> and it's actually much more fulfilling than swiping to the next thing. It's so funny, like, because so this season, um, I'm interviewing a lot of people who I had the pleasure of of meeting or listening to at the Planet Local Summit, which was in Bristol a short while ago. Have you do you know the um, uh, the work of Helena Norberg Hodge talks about economies of happiness and things like this? Yes, I am. Uh, I, I am a distant supporter. Oh, okay, because <laughs> you're just speaking, and I thought, oh, that's so uncanny. But yeah, a lot of a lot of resonance with what you're 
what you're just naming. It's not a big coincidence, coincidence in a way, <laughs> because uh, yeah, we are humans. Uh, our biology has remained relatively unchanged for thousands and thousands, tens, maybe hundred thousand years, yeah. maybe more. Um, and there are very good evolutionary reasons why you know our hormonal system is the way it's set up. Mm. Any of our ancestors who, when a bear romped into the village, had a deep philosophical thought, <laughs> well, their tasty genome is a coprophyte at best at this point. <laughs> you know, we are the children of the survivors. Yeah, yeah, and those who are perhaps more vigilant. But then, and yet still, we end up with folks who are the philosophers and the artists. They haven't, we have, you know, I think there's there's definitely something to be said for a constellation of traits and qualities that enable the more heterogeneous group to survive, even if there were lots of people who are really good at being vigilant and keeping everybody safe. I think there's a slight mischaracterization there. I think you can be um, a vigilant optimist. I think you can be a practical philosopher. Oh, yeah, I, like that. I, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Uh, and, and in fact, I would encourage everybody to build their philosophical muscle, uh, whether they have a biased reaction or not, whether they're optimistic or pessimistic. Mm. Because, you know, you, you can stand on the shoulders of giants in philosophy um, very easily, and it's never been more accessible. And that's one of the nice things about the internet is that some, we all have access to the greatest minds of our entire history. And that's, you know, a superpower should you choose to use it. And there's enormous fulfillment there. So just let's let's drop in like a couple of um, your favourites then. If there are specific channels that you like or names that come to your mind, what are some of your top go-to places for people to kind of curiously and you know, explore? So my, my one of my top go-to places is science fiction. Uh-huh. So the, you know the, the the works of Asimov and Clark and Gibson, yeah, you know, these are fantastic places. I also like uh, I, I I particularly love Terry Pratchett. Oh yeah, I think. Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams yeah. are, in fact, the Plato's and Aristotle's of our time. <laughs> They've just cloaked it in entertaining stories. Mm. Um, there's some very deep philosophical truth in a lot of these very entertaining reads. Mm. Mm-hmm. Kind of sneaks in through the humour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and like this is one of the reasons that I do comedy is because... I think that there are messages that are best received when you're laughing and that become memorable when you're, you're having a laugh about it. Yeah. Um, um, I think the, 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 the tendency towards being very didactic mm. about knowledge transfer is not a benefit. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, in Coda Dojo, it's not about teaching each other. It's about creating an environment within which learning emerges because a lot of these things are emergent properties. Right. Uh, very, very fond of the, the book Sapiens. I think that explains a lot. Um, I'm uh, very fond of uh, Bill Bryson <laughs> and his looks at history yeah. and philosophy there. I think that's they're, they're tremendous books. Um, there's a litany. (laughs) (laughs) You also have an extremely good memory for listing the names. From a a, uh, YouTube perspective, I very much like a a little German channel that's animated called Kurzgesagt, which is uh, in a nutshell. Um, Brilliant. Just brilliant. Watch them all. Okay. 
Um, and and uh, I, I'm also a big fan of John Oliver's work, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on Last Week Tonight. I, I think if you just go back and watch watch through his perspective, it is it is you know really interesting. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of very pithy work out there uh, that you you can find if you, you you know even if you just simply Google philosophy and and go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't even touched on podcasts. I wonder, have you come across the um, the books of Ted Chiang? Uh, no, I have not. Very curious, because I don't, I mean, I love science fiction. I was raised on Star Trek. My dad was a big, big fan back in the super early days. Yep. And there's a whole, Gene Roddenberry ha- oh. is also a great modern day philosopher. Yeah, he's one of, <laughs> yeah, absolutely love his work. Yeah. But I don't often read that much sci-fi. I tend to read a lot more kind of non-fiction. And my partner was like, I think you need to read this. And they're short stories. And I don't ever really, you know, so it's like, oh, okay, I'll just read this. Just phenomenal, really beautifully written. Yeah. Some of them super metaphysical. Others are more about what, what would happen if you couldn't perceive beauty yeah. or if our mate selection was based off of different property. It's just really poetic. Yeah. You know, I, I have a feeling you might see if you've got the time to uh, read it. Uh, and by the way, our, <laughs> there is some evidence to suggest that our mate selection is based off complementary immune systems. I've read this too. Yeah. Yeah, there's also some evidence to suggest that taking the contraceptive pill alters this detection of that. Yes. And so that 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 relationships that start when when the contraceptive pill is involved, when that is taken out of the equation to look at childbearing, uh, sometimes those relationships don't survive that. <laughs> yeah, I. It's so funny that you know that because a lot of people don't know that, and not many blokes that I know know that. Uh, I've definitely had conversations with a few female friends where they've been in long-term relationships and have been on the pill for years and they come off and they say that the smell of their partner, they suddenly smell them differently. Yes. And that's just like, how? But fascinating. Well, how is pretty uh, pre- pretty simple. We, we, we have much better sense of smell than, than, than we make out. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, but, but like, you know, there's a whole lot of myths in science. Um, like, for instance... There's a myth that birds uh, don't can't smell or can't smell well, um, and that was just based off of physical examination of bird nostrils. <laughs> it wasn't. There's no. There's no data. Um, there's a myth that birds can't see ultraviolet, uh, but actually, many most birds can see ultraviolet. Wow. And and but like you know, a lot of experimental data has been ignored by people who, in fact, are getting in the way of some pretty amazing innovations. You know, I have a company that puts ultraviolet stickers on windows so birds don't smack into buildings. Oh. Um, and and uh, they're being held back because of pseudoscience that was done 100 years ago that is held held together as doctrine. Yeah. You know, it's like there's, there's a lot of stuff in the way. Yeah. <laughs> we have to sweep a, sweep a slide bit by bit. <laughs> so maybe now's a good chance to ask you, you know, sort of the practice, and I'm, and I'm sort of painting you perhaps as a practical optimist. Would that be a fair characterization? Sure. <laughs> so I'm curious, what lays heavy on your heart at this point in time? What lays heavy on my heart is the politics of division, the wars, <laughs> um, the rise and rise of uh, the acceptance of psychopathy and 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 toxic narcissism under the guise of self-actualization. 
Um, and it is an existential threat. So as far as I'm concerned, we have two major existential threats. You know, climate, climate change, which doesn't lay heavy on my heart because I can see a way to fix it. But the bigger threat to our civilization is actually the deification of personal fulfillment as the ultimate ideal because actually it's collective fulfillment that we should really be putting at the top of that list. How do you see us beginning to address that? Because I'm thinking, you know, we've mentioned oxytocin, we've talked about getting people to have the possibility, the permission to have conversations, to maybe even voice something that might be a private longing for them. You talk about in the, you know, the head is where kind of great ideas and perhaps longings and dreams go to die. What are some of the ways in which we can start to reach out to others and create more of this collective? Because even the word collective, a lot of people in individualistic societies will think that means a total loss of rights, of agency. Of, there's a lot of weight around that word. Yeah. And, and the ultimate result of individualism is loneliness. Hmm. You know, you're very individually fulfilled dying alone. Mm. And some would say we all die alone, but I think that's not true. I think that you can detect those around you to the last instant of your existence. Mm. And I would personally re regret passing away surrounded by no one who loved me. So, you know, there's a, 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 a powerful motivation to maybe put yourself, have the humility to lift others alongside you uh, rather than just advantage yourself. And how do we do that? We do it by living our best lives together rather than apart. So one more question on that before we kind of close with the last couple of questions. This is something that, I, so I went, I went to an event this morning and it was kind of a, um, it was supposed to be a sort of immersive, future-looking culinary kind of event. And one of the things that really struck me, I was the, I think I was probably the oldest person there. <laughs> I felt old. I was like, oh my God, this is new. <laughs> but um, there are all these folks who are probably in their, in their 20s. They're not like... <laughs> you know nothing. <laughs> no, like, the generation that's above are like, haha, just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I'm hoping to grow old disgracefully. No, gracefully, but just like <laughs> naughtily. Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely uh, disgracefully. disgracefully. <laughs> I, I think that's best. Yeah. Uh, a huge fan of Vivian Westwood. Oh, she, but she does it with such sass and style. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, you, one can always aspire, right? <laughs> well, you're very stylish. God, I need to take some leaves out of your book. It's worth putting some effort into. That is definitely an error. So even just getting my hair washed and putting makeup on for these things, that for me, I'm like, oh, my God, that's so much effort. I'm quite lazy in certain respects. Anyway, <laughs> I was at this event, and to your point about loneliness, we were there together and I was, I was wishing that I was feeling more. I was like, I, I get the idea. It's interesting on paper and I just don't feel touched by this experience. I don't feel moved. And I looked at those around me and I would say about two thirds of the folks around me, it's a small group, it's maybe 15, 16 people, were filming everything on their phones. And I was like, okay, this is what we're giving up. It's the visual looks interesting. But there is nothing beneath that veneer of the screen and it just and, and I thought well, I'm gonna go and then if I see this event later having not gone I'd be like oh that looks curious and it's, it's this weird 
it's like a, a hall of mirrors somehow. And I wonder what your take is on how we can reach through that sort of fourth wall or whatever you want to call it and, and ensure that folks, young people in particular, aren't getting trapped by appearance and visuals and that's it. Like, I don't know if I'm framing the question very well. Do you get a sense of what I'm trying to point towards, perhaps? I get a sense of it. I, I, I mean, when I see that amount of footage of something being taken, hmm. I know that that footage is going nowhere. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, even if it goes, even if it goes online, you know, it's not going to be. It's, it's not going to acquire a lot of views, and so uh, that footage is just emotionally satisfying the person that's there attempt to hang on to the moment to sort of bank it away to to kind of achieve a, a sense of immortality through the capture of something that they themselves will probably never look at again yeah and so it's just that emotional moment of oh i got that shot and there is some hope of oh i got that shot in a way that other people will find amazing and therefore it will get attention but that's a very small hope. Yeah. Um, speaking as somebody who's been a photographer for 51 years. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. There is, a, there is an, an element to capturing and framing something mm. that can touch people. Um, and when you get it, it's great and it's worth perhaps putting a bit of time into that, and I do. Mm. Um, it, you can't let that action of capturing something be the fulfillment yeah yeah if you do then that's a very cheap dopamine hit yeah it's the for me it's that thing of always responding as if you are performing to an imagined audience yes i mean great if you're an actor and if you're in stand-up and it's a really vital skill to have but to always be living through that kind of other in a way that isn't a yes. compassionate living through the other, but more kind of how am I being received? Do I look good? Do I sound? It's, it's um, yeah, as you say, it's a trap. There, there, are two, there are two components to that. There's one which is taking full responsibility for how what you say lands with another person, <laughs> like just 100% owning it until they get what you say in the way that you intended. <laughs> and then the other flip side of that is, listening to other people such that they feel heard. Yeah, that's powerful. And people are hungry for that too. Oh, yeah. There is an element of the eternal in providing somebody a powerful listening. I love that. I've not heard it phrased in that way before. So, I mean, I could keep asking questions, but we're running out of time. So um, <laughs> <laughs> when you come against really big challenges, and you've mentioned a few times scale, we haven't kind of gone too far down that path. But when you're thinking about all of the all of the challenges that future generations and ours are going to face, how do you have a sense of connection to life and beauty when things get really tough? How do you keep that flame alive? I uh, am a continual student of beauty. <laughs> um, I, as a photographer, I, I, I love looking for the essence of something and so i do you know regularly i have an instagram account and i regularly 
capture eight second vignettes of things that I've just seen. And I try and, I try and make it as cinema verite as possible. Hmm. So it's just what I'm looking at at that moment. I, and it's eight seconds. So it's not going to take too long from somebody's day um, to just, just capture the beauty, but make sure that it's transmitted. Uh, and I, I, I like to think that it, it, it does that I do a reasonable job at that because you know, I've, I've done it for a long time. Um, I love museums and I love sculpture and I love mm. music and I love theater and I love film. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very, very delighted by the world. I love food and <laughs> you know, all that that entails. And I love cooking. Um, so I think that, uh, it's not so much, how do I keep that alive as much as that is life? Mm. Mm. That's lovely. Uh, and everything else is, is designed to you know, make that continue for as long as feasible for as many of us as possible. Wonderful. Well, if people want to find you, um, I don't have your Instagram link i've got the link for codadojo.com and weforest.org which you've only just mentioned but please if you're listening to this check that out it's codadojo.org ah dot org ah okay yes because it's also not for profit ah um i'm on x i'm i'm at lianet l-i-a-o-n-e-t um i'm on linkedin i'm an open networker um uh on instagram if you look up Bill Liao and spell my name right, L-I-A-O, you will find me. There's not that many Bill Liaos in the world. There are like three of us or something. Amazing. And none of them are stand-ups, entrepreneurs and reforesters. And none of them wear this hat. Yes. Please watch the video. He's wearing an amazing hat. Well, Bill, thank you. It's been really touching and interesting talking to you today. I really appreciate it. Natalie, it's been an absolute joy. And uh, your your work is excellent. And please keep up those small groups um, and let's have them spread. uh, Because that uh, power of that is not to be underestimated. Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to me to read your support, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour our love and time and attention. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can head over to natalienahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalienahai.com forward slash resources, and check out the gatherings I run at ffsalons.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.